and welcome to Global Digital Futures Podcast, brought to you by the SOAS Coding Club. I'm your host, Chipoma Pondera, and you're listening to SOAS Radio. This week, we are joined by Isabel Amazon-Brown to speak about designing chatbots for social development. Isabel is a design, UX, and content consultant who has worked on international development projects funded by DFID, USAID, the World Bank, as well as smaller NGOs. She's been designing and producing mobile products for social impact since 2011, first focusing on feature phone-friendly mobile sites, and most recently on chatbots. She's passionately jaded about digital development, having seen more projects fail than succeed, but still believes in the transformative potential of mobile if initiatives are designed and developed using the right methodologies and as part of a considered ecosystem which leverages both traditional and digital approaches. Hi, Isabel. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, can you start by telling us what a chatbot is and what their benefits are, especially in the global south? Yeah, of course. So the chatbots that I work on, at least, they're basically computer programs which are designed to behave like a human conversation. So they imitate human conversation. And that means that they're particularly appropriate for instant messaging platforms or obviously voice services. So the ones that we're most familiar with are things like Siri and Alexa, and those are obviously at the cutting edge of what the technology can do. But increasingly, instant messaging apps like Messenger or WhatsApp or Telegram, WeChat, basically have allowed developers to integrate chatbot functionality. So that usually would be text-based. So really, the fact that they lend themselves so well to the instant messaging medium is one of the main advantages for their application in the global south. Because if people have a mobile and that mobile is internet connected, then the likelihood is they're going to have one of those chat apps because that's how people are increasingly communicating with friends and relatives, um, often for almost free. So the first advantage is basically sort of following the best practice principle of actually going to where people already are to do your digital interventions. And I think the other angle is with things like mobile websites or apps, when you're working in contexts where there may be very patchy literacy levels or varying literacy levels, it does allow people to get to information and content uh, much more quickly than having to sort of sift through all the noise that might be on a website or app. And also people are less likely to delete apps like WhatsApp because they're going to be using it every day. And I think the final thing of the conversational medium is that it gives a much more human and warm touch when you're doing social impact projects. Uh, the communication that you're offering to people can often be on quite heavy topics, quite serious stuff. And there can be a tendency to use language that's quite highfalutin and, and heavy to understand. And I think the chatbot medium lends itself quite well to toning that all down, making it all a bit more chatty and conversational and a bit more easy to absorb. So can you tell us some instances where a chatbot would not work or would maybe even have a negative impact? Yeah, definitely. The whole starting point of any project where you're considering using technology should be obviously making sure that people are using the technology that you're planning to implement on, which is not a given by any stretch of the imagination, sadly. So, you know, you need to first do your research and make sure people are using these platforms and the people that you're trying to reach can use them. A good example of something that can go very wrong very quickly and can actually put people at risk is a consideration of the role that gender plays in the use of technology and instant messaging. So for the most part, the internet is populated by 70 to 80% males. 
And there are a lot of women online. There are increasing amounts of young women online. They are probably more likely to have an internet-enabled phone than their mothers, for example. But that's not to say that their access is unrestricted. So even those who are online could be heavily supervised by male family members or their husbands. And so for the projects that I've worked on, uh, which tend to be about quite sensitive taboo topics like sexual and reproductive health or gender equality, you have to be really careful that you're not actually putting people at risk. Because if someone's receiving a message on WhatsApp and it's like, hey, let's keep chatting about STDs, you could literally be putting someone in physical harm. So I think that's a big factor for consideration. The other one is that although it's tempting to use a new medium like this, which is like conversational and fairly easy to engage with and where you can reach people quite quickly and on a repeated basis, chatbots are really difficult when you have something complex to talk about. So I use the example of sexual and reproductive health. They're very complex and sensitive topics where there are grey areas. And when you're trying to create a service which is effectively automated and can provide sort of one size fits all answers, especially if you're allowing people to ask questions in their own words, which may be very nuanced and based on very specific socio-emotional contexts, you're running the risk again of causing harm. So I think you just have to be very careful, maybe scale back your ambitions initially, just to at least see how people are interacting with it before launching into something that's potentially quite risky for your end users. And can you break down the AI part of it? I want to just go into how they actually work technically. So maybe what the differences are between the different types of AI that might power these chatbots. So this is a kind of a layperson's easy to understand explanation. So artificial intelligence is kind of for me the bucket term to describe a computer program which has the ability to interpret and process data and therefore have a sort of realistic conversation, whether written or verbal. So that's the sort of end product. So Siri, for example, is an artificial intelligence. Now, when you break down into what allows it to become artificially intelligent, there are the two components. One is natural language processing or understanding, NLP or NLU, and then there's also machine learning. Natural language processing is basically the process that that a computer program goes through to basically interpret meaning from the data that it's receiving. So in some cases that data might be numbers, but in the case we're talking about of a chatbot, that's usually going to be someone's words. The ability to interpret those words and categorize those words based on a system that it has been taught and then suggest an automatic response, which is going to be appropriate to the intent that the person had when they actually said or wrote those words. That's the natural language processing part. So it's the ability to interpret the intent of the user and serve back a response which actually makes any sense, which, as you know, probably from even using something as sophisticated as uh, Siri or Alexa is not a given to get right. And the machine learning is basically is the foundation of all of that. So the machine learning is the process that the computer program has had to go through to be able to do good enough natural language process to become artificially intelligent. So what that means usually is a set of training data that you will have fed into the program where you will basically teach it that if a user says X, Y, Z, that belongs to category ABC. And that probably means that they're going to need a response, which is, you know, ABC again. And because it's not just a one-off process, you start off with a set of training data to do that initial learning. And then as people start actually interacting with the service, the machine learning is an ongoing process. So it will continue to learn and evolve and hopefully to improve as people correct it and as uh, the you know software programmers are actually correcting it based on additional data. 
So how do they work in terms of the types of chatbots that you might have? And what are the benefits or limitations of each type of chatbot? Um, so when I started working with chatbots, I, I was hired to do some conversation design and sort of UX design. And I was like, how the hell am I going to do this? Because this sounds massively complicated. I'm not a computer scientist. I'm very bad with numbers. But as it turned out, there are three different types of chatbots. And a lot of the ones that I've worked on and that, you know, developed and sort of out there in the international development space are what you call on rails chatbots. So anyone who's familiar with ICT for development will probably be familiar with things like IVR, interactive voice response and USSD, which is an SMS based decision tree service effectively. So basically it means that if a user sends in a message, the message it will get back will behave like a decision tree. And it's like when you ring up to, you know, top up your data, do you, you know, press A for this, press B for this. And so decision tree chatbots or on rails chatbots basically don't allow users to deviate off those predefined user journeys. So it can still sit on Messenger or WhatsApp and it can still feel like chatty and fun, like you're talking to a real person. But if you go freestyle and you go outside of the lines and start saying things that are not some of the predefined options, then very quickly the bot will become restrictive and say like, I don't get what you're saying. Please pick one of my options. People are a bit snotty about that type of bot in the sense that it doesn't match the hype that you know we've built in our heads about the potential of AI. But I think they can be super effective at helping people unearth really interesting and important information in a very quick way and in a way that's like fun and approachable. So for me, that would be the benefit. So, for example, if you're an organization and you have an action that you absolutely want your users to take, so it might be signing a petition, for example, it might be taking a survey about some of the issues that matter in your community, or it might just be finding out information about the organization's physical presence and ways you can get involved on the ground. An on Rails chatbot would be ideal because it just allows people to get to that content very quickly without the noise of something like a website or an app or even social media pages. So the next type of chatbot is sort of the in the middle, which is what I call human in the loop chatbot. So that's where there has been some element of natural language processing integrated. So we're getting to the point where it's an artificially intelligent program. But typically the human in the loop is basically going to be there to try and validate the attempts at interpretation that the program is trying to make. So a really nice example is a project called Mum Connect, uh, which is implemented by an organization called Breakout Foundation. And they basically have a very long standing project where they deliver vital information to expectant mums and new mums. And they've done that historically via SMS, but they're now doing that via things like WhatsApp. Is that in the UK? It's a South African project. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So it's been like um, funded by the South African government. And it's one of, I think, very few examples of like really well implemented ICT for development that's integrated within the national health system as well, which is super important. And so the way that that works is that users can ask questions as well as receiving information on a regular basis. And um, basically they have a back end where those questions will go and a real person will sit in that back end rather than then having to type out the same answer to the you know this question that's probably been asked a million times over the uh, natural language processing will kick in in the back end and say like we think this is probably an appropriate response based on the machine learning that has gone through. And then the agent in the back end can validate that attempt at interpretation and say, yes, spot on, quickly send it back to the user. 
So what that's doing is making it more and more sophisticated, but it's also making sure that the user doesn't get something completely wrong, which could obviously be dangerous in that situation to the life of the mum or the baby. And so, yeah, the artificial intelligence is sort of working in the background, but obviously in a situation like that, it will get to the point where it becomes trustworthy enough, confident enough of its interpretation that it will do it automatically. And then the agent's role becomes not totally redundant because they still have to make sure it's working as it should. Um, But it takes a lot of pressure on their full money and in theory can make running that project a lot cheaper. And so the final one is like the dream, right, that everyone's trying to achieve. It's where it's fully automated and the artificial intelligence is like sophisticated enough to have a seemingly human conversation for a lot of aid organizations. That's still quite a long way off, but there's lots of people, you know, experimenting and doing some really interesting stuff. Yeah, I think it's really interesting when you mentioned the need for humans in the process and also the maybe fears that people have about AI and making human beings redundant, Mm -hmm. you know. The thing I'm more worried about in the in the sort of AI debate is not so much that, but it's more about if you think about AI and how it works, it's it's about someone's ability to basically get information at their fingertips just by asking a question and have it sort of immediately. And having a computer basically decide if someone asks a question in a certain way this is the one individual response I'm going to serve back to answer that question so right now when you google something you get tens of thousands of millions of responses and that's actually problematic because it means that well and from a user perspective because it's like you're overwhelmed so when I do um, you know user research and we say like well you have access to google and you're saying that you're using google to find this information like why isn't that good enough And they talk about this sense of sort of information saturation. How do I filter out what's real, what's not, what to trust? And so actually the feeling of trust and confidence in the internet is depleted, not enhanced. And I think the risk with AI is that people are going to start getting the expectation that the answer that the AI gives to them is the truth. So if you start playing with that and thinking about what could happen if it got into the wrong hands... And by wrong hands, I don't mean some sort of evil conspiracy. The wrong hands could be my hands. Because people like me are writing this content at at the end of the day. And there's still a lot of issues around the fact that the content developed and the data used for training AI is often completely centered on the West and Western needs and Western languages. So I think that's a more scary prospect, basically. Could you give us some examples then of just some projects in the Global South that have used chatbots to a positive effect? Maybe some projects you've worked on? (laughs) Yeah. So I mentioned already uh, Mum Connect in South Africa. I think that's a really interesting one. And there was a report that came out that was funded by Dial, which was about the use of instant messaging platforms in the global south for social impact. So it's not specifically chatbots, but it's about instant messaging and how that's used, including chatbots. So that's worth um, a look at. And one of the ones they, uh, case studies they looked at was an Alcoholics Anonymous chatbot that was developed with the support of Facebook um, in for the Brazilian market. And the idea there was to provide support for people who were struggling with alcoholism or thought they may be. Uh, and one of the really interesting aspects of it was that it ended up being used much more by friends and relatives of those individuals. So that's a really interesting application. I think what was quite good about it was because it was supported by such a long-standing organization it had probably more chance of success and obviously Facebook's backing would have helped a lot you should also check out Girl Effect and the work that they're doing Uh, they have a chatbot which I worked on called Big Sis 
which is aimed at teenage girls in South Africa. But we, when we piloted it, we piloted it in multiple countries to see if we could do a sort of global approach. And that's delivering information on anything that teenage girls are interested in, in terms of taboo subjects. So that quite often that's sex or it could be, you know, pregnancy fears, or it might also be things like periods and or just having crushes and what to do about it. Finally, another one which is in a similar field but in different countries is a, a chatbot called Nivi, which is giving people sexual health information. And what's really interested in that case is that they are driving people towards service uptake. So it's trying to sort of bring that link together between not just information dis- dissemination, but also actually getting people to enact behaviours in the real world and, and hopefully in a way that's then measurable so that they can develop a model to show that you can go from information to behaviour change, which is entirely automated and using technology. Just when you mentioned Girl Effect and that it was piloted in different countries and then used in South Africa, what were some considerations that were made in terms of like having to localise content and how challenging or simple was that to do? And was that an important consideration? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that project was really interesting because Girl Effect do have a brand which is meant to be a what they call a global brand. So the idea is that there's a globally recognised brand, but it might be adapted in certain ways depending on the um, target audience and the different countries. So the first attempt that was made across multiple countries in Southeast Asia and across the African continent was to see if we could have this global approach where you had someone like me writing the content. And I should add, you know, I'm very experienced at writing it in a way which remains sort of accessible and in touch with the way that young people speak and stuff. But nonetheless, it's still effectively you've got a British person writing this content and I think for things which have like a medical bearing, I think I'd say that matters a lot less. And actually, sometimes it can be a good thing to write it in very sort of simple, generic language. And one of the things that was important there was the development of a persona. So that was about testing. Can we identify a persona which is going to be globally resonant? So this bot, you know, does it have a character? Is it just the brand or is it someone who the the girls are sort of almost imagining when they're speaking to? And they did a test where they wanted to see whether one character would work globally over another. And what was very interesting there was that there was a very clear global preference for one of the characters, which was this big cis character. And I think the truth with localization is that you can get away with a very sort of generic global product with a global voice. But I still personally think that it will be a million times better if you go that extra mile and you use local slang and you really dig deep into the way people think and talk about the different topics. But obviously, then you get into the issue of uh, having to adapt your content in so many different ways, which then entails resources. And if you're trying to do that for a chatbot, you know, where you've got that whole process underneath it of trying to automate some of that, then obviously you're increasing rather than decreasing the resources that it takes. But for me, it's a really important factor. And I think the best bots I've used have been like hyper local, but with a solid basis and sort of globally recognized medical information, for example. So what are some of the things that should be considered when designing a chatbot? At your chatbot workshop, you had a chatbot design checklist which Mm -hmm. is really interesting can you tell us a bit more about that yeah sure so I think the first thing I'd say is any design process like whether you're designing for a chatbot or a website or a flyer you should be ultimately grounding it in a really solid understanding of your users and their contexts 
So that would be your first step is like understand your users and when the context they're operating in, understand how they're actually using the technology that you want to leverage if, if technology is something you want to leverage. In terms of the specifics of, you know, that I sort of learned as I started writing for chatbots, I've mentioned voice and persona already. And I think it's easy to sometimes get a bit hung up on persona and sort of feel like you have to create this amazing whimsical character. And that can definitely be fun and it can definitely add an aspect of sort of attraction and unusualness for your users. But I don't think it's the be all and end all. And not all projects would need it. So one of the chatbots I've developed is like effectively just trying to drive people towards petitions for a big advocacy organization. And I was like, oh, let's have a cool persona. And they're like, no, I think I just don't think it's really necessary here. And sure enough, when we did the user testing, it made absolutely no bearing on like how many users were sort of, you know, signing petitions in the end. But it's one thing to consider and to be really consistent as well throughout the whole process with that voice and tone. The other one is about setting expectations. And I think with chatbots where you're straddling that bridge between having some stuff on Rails and maybe some stuff that's automated, you need to be really clear with your users what they're getting and what the bot can and can't do. So making sure that in your marketing that expectation is set and repeat it if necessary throughout that user journey and the onboarding process. I think one of the big stumbling blocks as well that you need to take into consideration is about terms and conditions and privacy. And it's a really tricky one because I think hopefully conscientious implementers care about helping users make informed consent let alone whether it's sort of legal or, or illegal, depending on the context that you're working on, not to ask for people's explicit consent. But quite often when you do put a kind of whole process about privacy and trying to sort of get them to think about the privacy and get them to understand or sign terms and conditions early on in the process, you get massive drop-off rates. And so it's a really delicate line to tread between doing due diligence in terms of being responsible to what your users should know about what happens to their data because there's obviously a huge lack of understanding when the user's chatting with a bot about what's going to happen and then actually making a, a you know a difficult user experience because the users actually are kind of I don't I don't really care and yeah in terms of sort of other design considerations thinking about different formats can be useful as well um, obviously even though you're having like a human type conversation that doesn't mean you can't have fun with it so I've done chatbots where at the end of learning about a particular topic, for example, you can give people a quiz that they can just do over the chatbot or you could do like a quick poll or get people to share stories and, you know, read other people's inputs, that kind of thing, and just get a bit creative with the format. And I think another thing that's really important is making sure that when people get stuck, which they inevitably will, because no matter how well you think you've designed it, there'll always be that unpredictability make sure that basically error recovery is really smooth. So if someone types something and the bot can't answer it and they get just stuck and everything goes wrong, you need to just provide them with really clear exit strategies. So one way of doing that might be, for example, saying if you type the word menu at any time, you'll go back to this central point or if you type buy, we'll stop chatting. And so just really thinking through every single scenario that might happen as much as possible and then creating um, a solution to meet that scenario. And just have fun with it because that's the fun about that medium is it can be chatty and maybe a bit whimsical and uh, do something creative. With the chatbots that you worked on, for example, did you do user testing for all of them? And did you do the user testing with the intended like target users? Well, user testing is one of my favourite things to do. It makes it all worthwhile because all of your assumptions that you have about how people are going to interact with your product 
sometimes get validated and that's a really great feeling because it shows that you're sort of in touch with your audience and what they want and then obviously sometimes more often than not things get turned on the head and you learn something new and then you can improve so it's a great process whether you you do it or don't does d- does depend on like the funding that your project has got and actually what your funder is interested in so if I go into a project and I've, I've got influence and in design or conversation design I will always always try and get user testing done and sometimes you'll get told like we have no budget for that because people imagine that user testing involves going out and spending loads of money but the great thing about chatbots is that you can do user testing really simply and also very early on so for example i went out to india to do some user research for this sexual health chatbot and a colleague and and, and me were sort of sitting and thinking about how our prototype that we'd knocked together using rapid pro could change and we were like fiddling around on Rapid Pro and trying to make changes to the flow and getting stressed out because we had users waiting to use it. And we were like, well, actually, like this is ultimately a conversation. That means we can just role play it between us. So we just wrote some scripts and we role played it between us and then we did it over WhatsApp. So we were sort of pretending to be chatbots. It was interesting, <laughs> interesting experiment. And it immediately showed us where things felt unnatural or sort of uneasy. So I think you can be really, really clever and quick and not spend any money at all. Um, So I've done that sort of end of the spectrum. But then also when you do proper usability testing, when you're only usually having to work with about six people in each different context. So I did it in uh, Nairobi this year and with a whole variety of different women. I've found that everyone without fail is very nervous coming into a usability testing session because they have no idea what to expect. So there's a huge amount of work that goes into putting people at ease, really explaining what you're here for. And so in that context, you'd spend, you know, up to an an hour, an hour and a half max just sitting through and getting them to like work through the product in front of you. And actually you can then see for your own eyes, like how people are interacting. So what are some of the differences between user acceptance of chatbots in the West versus in the global South? I think, yeah, it's a really interesting question. I've done, I will say I've done a lot less user testing in in the global north (laughs) than I have in elsewhere in the world. But broadly speaking, I would say that in the UK and the US, for example, there's a lot more impatience and there, there are a lot more sort of prior expectations around a chatbot and how it should behave. So when things go wrong and it doesn't behave like the way they want, people are much more quick to sort of give up on it and say it's kind of dumb. Then in the global south, it obviously varies depending on market. So you have countries like Nigeria where I've done user testing and at least the users I was working with who are tend to be sort of urban, quite politically engaged young people, students and stuff like that, who are really very tech savvy and sort of have, have cottoned on to the idea of chatbots. They might not have necessarily used them, but they're very open to it. They really were excited that, you know, the, the brand that I was working with was like experimenting with chatbots and they were doing it in Nigeria. There was a lot of hype. So in a way, they're, they're more likely to be generous where your user experience might not be perfect. I think just the fact that it's something new and different and sort of a bit fun and quirky is very appealing to, to the young people I worked with there. And my real concern, you know, working like with Urban Poor in, in Delhi, for example, was that you would have completely the opposite reaction, that people would be so overwhelmed and so confused, like, who am I talking to? Is it a person? What is this, etc.? And like a lot of times when you're doing user research, that expectation was sort of flipped, basically. I think people were a lot less phased than I imagined. And one of the things that someone mentioned, which then totally made sense to me, is that 
people are used to using voice-based services a lot more because of literacy and illiteracy rates being quite high in some of those contexts. It means that there's an ease with the conversational medium that people sort of enjoy and take for granted. And so even if you just have a basic dumb phone, you're probably going to be calling up an, an automated service much more often than I might do nowadays. And so people are kind of like taking it in their stride a lot more. I will say the one thing that did affect the user experience was about the choice of platform. So the prototypes that we were testing on were running via Messenger because that was like the quickest to set up on whilst we knew that WhatsApp was by far the most popular. And so we kept on having to say, you know, we do understand that Messenger isn't the ideal platform for it. And they were like, yeah, but listen to sort of why that is. And a lot of the feedback that came back was that because Messenger is, a, is sort of attached to the Facebook brand, people make a mental connection between Facebook Messenger and Facebook as a whole. And so they think of Facebook as a very public platform. So even though Messenger itself is not visible to the public in any way, in people's minds, there's always that risk. And so when you're talking about maybe sensitive topics, there's a lot more paranoia. Whereas, you know, if, you, if they said if it was on WhatsApp, I wouldn't have that worry. It's just that brand association in their minds is causing a bit of paranoia and, and concern. So these are things I would never have thought of, you know, going into that choice of platform. But that's why user testing is so important. I think we already spoke about specific considerations on privacy. Like, let's say with your with the chatbots that you've worked on, who owns that data? And do the governments of those countries have any sort of involvement? Or any Are there any regulations that are put into place about how that data can be used, how it's protected and the ownership of it? Well, yeah, it depends entirely on, on the country. So one key difference, for example, when adapting this chatbot for launch in India that had previously been running in Kenya was that India does have quite strong regulations about data and informed consent. And so that whole thing about having terms and conditions and getting people to accept them was something we had to do there that we didn't have to do in Kenya. So that just, yeah, it will depend entirely on, on the country. In terms of who owns the data, I don't think the government has anything to do with the data specifically, even when they do regulate. But where it gets more problematic is working like with organizations like Facebook. They basically do own the data, I think, as well as you, the person who's running the service, as everything with Facebook and now WhatsApp, because they own it. It's something that you should be very careful of and consider depending on what you're actually trying to do. What's more concerning is that the thing I raised earlier that users themselves, like when they think about privacy, they're thinking about it in very traditional terms of like, is my conversation that I'm having private from like my friend or my neighbor or my community? They're not thinking about it in terms of is my data being used and so as implementers, as a community of implementers, there's some really important conversations to be had about the sort of the duty of care that we have towards our users. And when you know that trying to overegg the issue too much is going to actually put users off from using your services, whilst at the same time, if you don't do that, I think you are, you know, not being a responsible implementer. So I think if anything, there should be more of a focus in the industry in terms of what gets funded in, in ICT for Dev of not actual products, but much more about digital education and particularly around things like data privacy and safety so that the generation that is now like fully bought into using all of these online services has a really solid understanding of what it actually means to have your data uh, effectively owned by um, multinational third parties and should you care, basically. 
and that's then their decision if they do or don't obviously so I wanted to ask about how you ended up getting into this type of work and also what your hopes are for where where it could go. I got into this work very randomly. I had a um, history background and then for my master's I specialised in life history research and oral history. So I was all set to go down a sort of, you know, either an academic career and sort of become a historian or to try and work maybe in documentary production, something like that. And through that, I went to a documentary festival and one of the presenters there happened to be involved in the very early stages of a startup that was using mobile to reach young people in South African townships. And so when this guy said that they were running this website for young people and one of the key things that they were doing was actually sharing their stories and sharing their feelings and thoughts. I was like, this is fascinating because this has actually got a lot to do with my work on oral history and life history research. It's like life writing effectively. And, you know, with sources that we often just don't hear about. And to this day, we don't hear about enough. So I just got involved in the very early stages. And then the design side of things really made sense to me because it's kind of about ultimately it's rooted in understanding people. And that's really the anthropology and ethnography side that you get in oral history also. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting. Even if you have a chatbot about a specific issue or topic, you still can get quite a lot of information about the culture that mm. exists around that. You can actually maybe start to get a you know really great understanding about the culture of a place or Absolutely. communities, how they work. Yeah, and I think one of the things I've always hoped to be able to get more involved in is partnering with the academic world because I think there are lots of people doing interesting stuff with ICT for development, but I think academics as a whole, so for example, life history researchers, would do well to look at what's happening in the international development sector because reams and reams of data is being collected from so many different countries, which are traditionally very difficult to reach by researchers. And that's exactly what I did my MA research on was like, I have tens of thousands of pieces of real-time life writing by young South Africans. I found that really interesting as an academic and I think journalists would find that very interesting as well. And as far as I can tell, there's not been enough tapping into the digital life that young people and older people are living online all over the world. And there's masses of information there to be mined and creative things to be done with. And yeah, I think it's a, it's a shame that hasn't doesn't seem to be happening more than it is. Great. Well, that's such a great conversation and such great insights. It's a really interesting field and do you have any final insights that you wanted to say? No, I don't think so. I just think if you're interested in chatbots, you know, just have a have a bash at writing a, an imaginary conversation and just see where it takes you because it's a really fun medium to work with. And I would, yeah, I'd be really interested in getting more involved, like I said, with, with students and young people who are interested in the sector and particularly those who actually are living in the global south because I don't think people like me should be the ones designing these things. You know, I think it should be people in Zim, for example, you know, or South Africa. So I'm more interested in that sort of capacity building. And uh, yeah, so have a go. Well, for our listeners to discover more about this topic, you can access the following resources available in the show notes on our website. Follow Isabel on Twitter at Isabel Amazon, and you can connect with her on LinkedIn as well. And learn more about new methods of sex education for adolescents in sub-Saharan Africa through mobile phones in the article New Digital Ways of Delivering Sex Education. Read the article Using WhatsApp to Combat Gender-Based Violence 
which is part of a series of blogs by Isabel, which traces each step of an iterative approach to digital program design, and read Isabel's reflections on designing chatbots in the blog Three Big Questions Before Funding an M4D Solution. You can find us online at www.soascodingclub.com, follow us on Facebook at SOAS Coding Club and on Twitter at SOAS Coding Club. We broadcast every two weeks, so tune in to discover what's to come in your global digital futures. Thank you.